Hi, I'm Steve Goldstein, and this is the Friday News Cap podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. We're doing things that have never been done before, and we're going to reform our government, and she doesn't have a plan. And not to mention, she's racist, she's a convicted racist, and she's practiced discriminatory hiring practices, and we will not allow someone like that in the governor's office. Where so many people leave the party because they're disenchanted and have want no part of this emotional thuggery, that they will leave. And you have to have numbers. Well, I don't think anyone had gone this far with saying that this legislative privilege uh, should apply to the Open Records Act so broadly. It really is a privilege that is meant to say, you as a legislator speaking on the Senate floor or discussing legislation can't be sued for libel. And with us to talk about upcoming debates, legislative privilege and more, our attorney and former congressional staffer, Roy Herrera, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And Matthew Benson of Veritas. Matt, good to see you. Great to be here and see you both live and in the flesh. Yes. So, Matt, let's start off with you. I apologize for this in advance, but since you worked for the Robeson campaign, now we're talking about what's going to happen with debates between Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs. Um, do you think Katie Hobbs is going to agree to debate Carrie Lake? Well, first, let's start with this. All right. Let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that that this is about what's in the best interest of voters or good government or transparency. Both cal- both campaigns are going to make a cold calculation about what is in their best interest. And Katie Hobbs is only going to debate Carrie Lake if she thinks she has no other choice. So even to do one debate? Even to do one, okay. she's only going to do it if she thinks that the race is in doubt and she absolutely has to and she's taking on too much criticism and, and too much political water by not debating her. Otherwise, she's just going to play keep away as long as she possibly can. Roy, are there compelling reasons for Katie Hobbs to debate? Well, I mean, there's always the, you know, not to downplay what Matt said, but there's always the, the, the civic engagement piece to it, right, that Arizonans deserve to sort of see the two candidates and the contrast between the two candidates. I think, like anything else, the devil's in the details. And I'm not privy to sort of the negotiations that the Hobbs campaign has had with, you know, with clean elections. Um, but I think the concern is that we want the debate or the, the campaign wants a debate where there will actually be substantive dialogue, substantive discussion um, about you know various views on public policy and visions for the state and not a situation where the candidates are just yelling at each other and talking over each other and whatnot. So I think that's what the, the current negotiations are about. And my understanding is we're supposed to have an answer today on whether they're going to do it or not. But I totally agree with Matt, Matt's point, which is that both campaigns are just deciding sort of what's best for them politically. Well, so Matt, given what you said about how Katie Hobbs might be making her decision, the polls, such as they are, have shown a pretty close race. And she certainly is taking criticism, at least in some quarters, for not debating. Is that enough to maybe compel her to do it? Well, not so far. I mean, look, I guess we're going to find out today. But uh, what we have to keep in mind is Carrie Lake spent three decades on television. This is this is a home game for her to be in a debate, a televised debate environment. So, you know, we confronted the same thing with the Karen Taylor Robeson campaign. And ultimately, of course, we, we debated. Uh, but, you know, going up, this would be a one-on-one debate. So it's a little different than what we had in the primary where there were four candidates and it turned into a bit of a circus. Uh, one-on-one against Kerry Lake, that is, uh, I mean, that's an intimidating prospect for uh, for for Katie Hobbs to consider. So I look if I'm a betting man and and I am, I don't think she debates. 
So, Matt, let me ask you this also, and Roy, I want you to chime in as well, because what Roy said about the possibility of maybe having a substantive debate where issues are, are debated and discussed, and I'm not just for this race, but for any race at all at this point, is, is that a possibility that you can actually debate ideas as opposed to just trying to get the best zinger in there? You know, I, a lot of times I come on the show and I say, well, I, I wish it was so, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's that's kind of my initial answer to that, which is that, you know, I think there are times, even in recent years, where I've watched debates between candidates, and maybe not all of it was substantive, but you did see at moments, um, you know, what the differences are on a particular subject or a particular issue. And that, I think, was pretty informative. Um, I think we saw that in prior Senate debates, certainly in the presidential debates. I'm not sure we saw that in any of the primary debates here in Arizona this year. Um, I think there was attempts at that, but certain candidates, you know, just didn't allow for that. I'm hopeful that that could be the case for these statewides, um, particularly the governor's race. But again, it has to be done in a way that you know, allows for that. And, and we just happen to have to, to uh, Matt's point, a very famous candidate on, uh, you know, on the Republican side, who seemingly, uh, you know, in her communication style is, uh, you know, very aggressive. Um, and so how do you set up a situation where there's actually going to be able to have, you know, be that contrast so that Arizonans can make, you know, an educated, informed decision in November? Matt, is it possible? Uh, I, I, I guess. I mean, a free-flowing exchange of ideas. I mean, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think, you know, look, I don't, I don't ask that much out of my debates. All I want out of a debate is, uh, can we get a sense of where the candidates are? Can we get them off their talking points? Can we see how a candidate reacts under pressure? That, that's what I think voters are looking for out of a debate. And it's going to be messy, and that's fine. That's great. A little bit more drama. Uh, but more than anything, I think it'd be great to see these two candidates go at it for 30 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever it is. And so we get a little better sense from them because otherwise all we're going to find out and see about these candidates are the 30-second TV spots between now and November. Roy, if we think about, let's say, I'm going to throw out a number, 5% of voters are undecided, let's say, in the gubernatorial race. How many of those 5% to add even more numbers to the mix are actually going to watch a debate? If there's one, I would hope a pretty good percentage. If there's more than one, probably not. But are we doing the debates out of a civic duty, out of the idea of seeing these candidates? Are viewers actually getting enough out of them to either cement what they were thinking or change their minds? I mean, I think if, you know, and, and Master True comms professional here, an expert, but, you know, from my perspective, it's usually when things go wrong in a debate where that, you know, yeah. will eventually sort of get out into the into the public and affect things. And, you know, there's definitely moments where, you know, I think of Mitt, Mitt Romney's, you know, folders of women comment and things like that, where it's like, OK, well, that stuck with the general public. You know, on the substantive stuff, the non-controversial stuff, you're right. I mean, there's not, you know, a huge audience per se uh, for that. But I do think that there are people, independents in particular in Arizona, which are ultimately are going to decide this election that are going to get, if they're not going to watch the whole debate, at least some feeling about what occurred during that debate. And I think, for example, if you're the Hobbs campaign and the whole argument is that you've got, you know, kind of team sanity on one side and then you've got, you know, chaos on the other, um, that that would be a good opportunity, I think, to show the difference, right? That, that you have an adult in the room versus maybe somebody who isn't. That would be the opportunity that I would see if I were them. And Matt, it certainly doesn't pay for candidates to criticize the electorate of so Hillary Clinton, the deplorables and whatnot. That doesn't help to do that. And yet, are we thinking that uh, the voters who are watching these things are actually going to get enough to add to their knowledge, as you said, or is it going to be the 30-second sound bites? That's where I'm kind of wondering, yes, I'm very pro-debate, but do we get enough out of the debates to actually hold them? 
Uh, that's that's impossible to measure. And, and again, we're talking about the margins. If we assume this race and the polling suggests this race is going to be within five points, then, you know, we're talking about the margins and, and a little bit can make a difference. And it's not just how many viewers are watching that debate live, but how many are seeing the clips on social media and digital afterward? I mean, there was a clip from the Republican primary debate in, in the gubernatorial that got like six million views. So there will be moments from this debate, if it happens, that get a lot of eyeballs. Roy, do you think that if Katie Hobbs ultimately decides not to not to debate Carrie Lake, does that affect her in November? Like, do you think it ultimately matters? Like, does it hurt her at all? Does it help her maybe? You know, again, I mean, that's that's also hard to measure. I mean, that's hard to say. You know, oftentimes we have this debate about debates and the cynical version of me would be like, well, this doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, because it is ultimately going to be, uh, to Matt's point, about the 30-second, you know, TV ads and digital ads and, and all that kind of good stuff. And that's how people are going to make their decision. Um, on the other hand, though, um, you know, as we've kind of discussed, I mean, I do think if this is a, a one-point race, two-point race, three-point race, which is all very possible here, um, that it could affect, you know, things, either because it's a lost opportunity um, or perhaps avoiding, you know, a, a potential pitfall. Um, either way, it could have an effect whether they do it or not. I'm going to ask another question, Matt, that is unanswerable probably, but style over substance. I mean, all four of us are very stylish, but when it comes down to what people – on a public radio broadcast, I feel like substance is so important, but you mentioned Carrie Lake's experience. There's no question she's going to win on style. It, look, you have to have both. Yeah. You have to have the substance behind you, obviously the optics, the style, the, the delivery. I mean, there's a reason that candidates practice and practice and practice for these debates. So it does matter. You have to, but you have to be the full package to win over voters. Let's uh, talk briefly. We're going to go to break and we'll come back to this uh, afterwards as well. Roy, I want to get your take on the Supreme Court ruling this week on the uh, Senate not having to release a number of its records related to uh, their ballot review, um, basically dealing with the issue of legislative privilege. A lot of folks saying, you know, we would like to be able to see the public has a right to know. A lot of legislators saying, well, these are things that should remain private because it's legislative business. I'm curious what you make of it. Well, I, I preface this answer, I think, by being a lawyer that represents public bodies. Um, and so in some ways, if you're looking at this um, opinion, and I think I'm looking at it as you kind of described, which is that it expands, I think, my understanding of what legislative privilege is, which theoretically would allow, you know, governmental bodies to uh, not have to produce, you know, an expanded sort of number of records uh, in response to public records requests. That being said, um, you know, I think there's still some things to work out from this opinion. So, for example, there's exceptions to legislative privilege related to whether the records are political in nature. Well, I view the audit, for example, as being entirely political. So it's a little bit strange to me to sort of figure out how to like sort of discern between those two categories. But I think there's no doubt that this opinion will lead to uh, government actors withholding more records uh, under this this idea of legislative privilege, because that ex that definition has been expanded by the state supreme court. Matt, you have both covered government and worked in government. Um, uh, you know, as somebody who has has filed freedom of information requests and and probably been on the receiving end of them, what do you make of of what the supreme court had to say? Well, look, what I would tell you from my past is that legislative privilege has always been a a very malleable sort of murky definition. As, uh, as a reporter seeking documents from, from lawmakers and legislative offices. So if we're now extending that standard to the audit, uh, you know, the end, at the end of the day, the public's going to get less, less visibility into the communications behind uh, what happened with the audit. 
Okay, that's Matthew Benson of Veritas, also with us as attorney and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera. We're in the midst of the Friday newscap. Roy, let's dig in a little bit more on this. So, again, I'm going to sound like a, a good government wannabe here, but when it comes down to, we know that there are things that the public maybe, maybe would have reason not to know. But when it comes to things like this and and the cyber ninja situation, uh, is there a good argument to be made that the public doesn't have a right to know this information? It seems a little bit shaky. I mean, in this instance, I have a hard time making that argument, I think. Um, and I, and again, I, I've and I kind of preface this already before, which is that I kind of viewed the whole exercise as this kind of a fiasco and a political endeavor and didn't relate to really any kind of true legislative deliberation. You know, I didn't expect that the audit was actually going to lead to the legislature considering changing, you know, our election laws more than it really was about, you know, trying to um, introduce doubt uh, into the results of the prior election for political reasons to appease Trump. So in this instance, I have a hard time, you know, seeing a situation where why there would be a real reason to withhold these records from the public other than the fact that the records would be embarrassing in some way. Um, and so that's my suspicion here. But again, this ruling is going to have pretty broad implications for a lot of different governmental bodies in, in uh, strengthening their, their sort of argument that we don't have to give these records over to you as a media or as to a private citizen. Now, when you mentioned legislative privilege being malleable, um, is that something that is malleable in and of itself? Is that something that people would want to get on the horn about? Or is that just something we discuss when these things occasionally pop up? Well, when I say malleable, I mean, uh, look, I think with a lot of public records requests, it comes down to the first the, the first answer you may get back from that governmental body is no, citing executive, you know, executive immunity or legislative immunity or some other reason to withhold. And then it becomes, frankly, a question of, okay, are you as a media outlet willing to pay to get an attorney and challenge that and potentially take it to court and there are a lot of expenses involved in that. So a, a, you know, Roy is right that a, a decision like this potentially gives more cover to governmental bodies to just come out and say flatly up front, no, this is legislative, this is protected under legislative privilege and, and then it puts, it puts the impetus on whoever's requesting that material, are they willing to pony up to get it? Matt, would you imagine that this ruling will lead to more of that, of just flat out no's at the beginning and basically come come and get it if you want it? Yes. Roy, what do you think? Absolutely. It would be good for lawyers. So perhaps that's the only benefit here for for, for, for me. But, but it, you know, I think it'll lead to that. And, you know, my perspective on this is also that depending on the outcome of the, the election this November, we could be in a world where we have divided government. And I could just sort of imagine the, the negotiations <laughs> and um, and in the proposals that come out of this legislature. And, you know, it, it's just going to be kind of chaotic in some ways. And in, as an instrument, you know, to that are these public records requests to find out what's going on. And again, it gives, you know, governmental bodies more cover to say, you don't, you don't need to know. And Roy, I want to apologize, we should apologize at the beginning for making you talk about 2020 again, because you've had to do that too many times <laughs> on this show. Um, Matt, we're going to call on you as the communications expert again. So Tom Horn, who's been elected to statewide office multiple times, and one would think would be a little savvier, let's say, uh, had himself tied a bit to disgrace former Representative David Stringer, and now has has said, okay, I'm, I'm no longer going to be involved with this guy, I'm giving it back his donation, whatever it was. Should a guy like Tom Horn have had to go through this? Should he have known better? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't believe this story when I first saw it. You know, for, for folks who are not aware, David Stringer, former legislator, pled guilty to some child sex issues from the 1980s, including child pornography. Uh, I think I've got that right, 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 Roy? Yeah. Okay, he's nodding yes. So, I mean, the, to, for, for your 
for you to tie your campaign to this individual seems like uh, just it's malpractice. It, it's it's insane. And uh, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, as a communications professional, I just I fall out of my chair. Well, Roy, I wonder if in some ways, I mean, as bad as it is, as Matt was saying, that that Horn was connected to this to this guy and had him on his campaign to now come out and say, oh, no, no, he was never associated with the campaign. Like in some ways, is that kind of making it worse? Yes. I mean, one, I questioned, like, why didn't he know that from the beginning? And he probably did and just sort of ignored it. Then it was brought to his attention. And it seems as though, at least in one of the television interviews I saw where he, you know, indicated that that Stringer was involved in the campaign and didn't have the concerns about, you know, his past. And then he flips to saying he was never involved at all and is returning his in-kind contribution and all this kind of stuff. So it just has made this worse. Although from the beginning, it was really bad, and I just don't understand it at all. Matt, we've seen uh, we've seen Kathy Hoffman use this in at least on social media in terms of trying to let people know about it and make it somewhat of a campaign issue. When you're talking about a, a former legislator who I'm guessing the general public maybe doesn't know or at least doesn't remember if they did know who he was, how big of an issue might this become as we move forward toward November? I just think it's it's part of a pattern of behavior that she's going to try to allege regarding Tom Horn. And, you know, let's recall the, uh, you know, issues, the FBI investigation and the SEC issue. And uh, it's just it's a litany. We don't have enough time on this show to go through Tom Horn's <laughs> troubled background. OK, so uh, she's just going to she's going to make her campaign about uh, I've been a middle of the road, effective superintendent of public instruction. And and this guy uh, has this lengthy, lengthy background of troubling issues. And Matt, we know obviously primaries when they are extremely contested and a lot of candidates in it, you know, we can split the vote in so many different ways. Uh, even with his name recognition, did it surprise you that, that Tom Horn came out as the winner in that primary? It, it did. It did. And, and you know, you've got a multi-candidate field there. And uh, needless to say, Tom was not my choice. But But hey... I mean, as we found, you know, my, my candidates didn't win uh, in all the primary races. So, yeah. Uh, Roy, briefly, we know that, you know, 2022 is expected to be the big red wave and maybe things like Roe v. Wade being overturned are going to change that. Maybe some of the candidates the Republicans nominated. When it goes down that far on the ballot, I mean, Kathy often won statewide office before. Is this going to be a harder battle than maybe it should be for her because of the wave going a certain way? I mean, it sort of depends on if you think that things are going to go, you know, kind of one way all, you know, throughout the ballot or whether voters are going to sort of make individualized decisions, you know, and say, okay, I'll vote Democrat here, Republican here, Democrat here. You know, I think political science tells us that oftentimes there is a drop off, you know, you know, people typically do vote a certain way or or sort of go home. Um, I think all these races are going to be tight. I think we can all agree on that. Um, I know there's polling that shows, you know, maybe there's the Democratic advantage. Um, and, and Democrats in otherwise, you know, what would be a bad year, I think are in a position to actually win many of these races. But I think all the races are going to come down to a point or two. And it's going to be very curious to see sort of whether there's a consistency to that or whether it's sort of top of the ticket and then kind of fades down. Matt, speaking about primary results that maybe a lot of people didn't see coming, uh, there was a lawsuit this week from State Senator Vince Leach to try to get back on the ballot, claiming uh, that the candidate who beat him in the primary uh, doesn't live in the district. And, you know, we've seen these kinds of challenges in the past, and typically they go the way this one did, that the the uh, the residency requirement is not really upheld as that strongly that, you know, the candidate, if they say they live there, the court usually goes along with that. Does that 
change the dynamic in this this race? I mean, clearly Leach is very, very conservative. His opponent, though, is more affiliated with with QAnon. Like, does this change that race at all in a pretty heavily Republican district? I don't think so necessarily. That that isn't a uh, a particularly swing district by any by any stretch of the imagination. So, look, Vince Leach would have been the stronger candidate as a you know an incumbent and and somebody who's well known and very conservative, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I expect that seat still remains re- Republican, frankly. Roy, in from a legal perspective, like, is there something that, that you think can change or maybe a different way courts should be looking at residency requirements? We saw this year, just this year, we saw this case. We saw a case with a Phoenix City Council candidate. D- do these laws maybe need need reworking or are they being handled in the right way? I was involved in, in interest of full disclosure in that Phoenix City Council uh, residency challenge. I mean, it, it is a very difficult uh, challenge. Uh, to to bring uh, because the standard physical presence and intent to remain it, a lot of times is in the sort of eye of the beholder, in the eye of the of the candidate. Absent some sort of statutory change, I'm not sure. You know, to our election laws, I'm not sure there's any other way that you could do it because the judge is not ultimately you know not going to want to get into the weeds uh, when you've got a candidate saying I live in a certain place. Uh, and in this all sort of changed, if you all remember, with the Don Shooter uh, residency challenge, where the standard was essentially, you know, brought, you know, pretty low. Uh, so again, unless the, ch- the law itself changed, I don't think we're going to see anything different. Matt, this is going to be a weird question in the last minute or so. But when we think about how con- congressional districts are drawn and how people are, you know, able to fudge that to some extent about where they live, obviously, legislative districts much smaller than that. How big an issue is that? I mean, because how many legislative issues are based on neighborhood community questions? Well, let's remember that in congressional districts, you don't have to live in the district. So, you know, I could run from from Scottsdale for for technically any any congressional district in the state. Now, you, you get branded a carpetbagger and that sort of thing. And so there's a political price to pay to be paid. But uh, there's no residency issue there. Legislatively, though, of course, you do need to live in the district technically. Uh, and I think it is a bigger issue at a legislative level because those are those those races are more about your neighbors, the people in that area, the local issues, they get to know you. You can actually walk that district. Uh, so I, I think it is potentially a much bigger issue at a, leg- at a legislative level. Roy, briefly on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, there was always a political price to pay on being a carpetbagger, theoretically. And I think Matt maybe should think about running for Congress in another, <laughs> in another district somewhere else just to test that out. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, there are requirements, additional requirements for, for legislators. But it always comes back to what is residency? You know, where do you actually live? And oftentimes, it's really only the person that knows that, you know, and that's kind of the issue that we have now. Attorney and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera and Matthew Benson of Veritas. Guys, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's big stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at the show at kjzz.org. I'm Steve Goldstein, and thanks for listening.